We read the text, brothers and sisters, because not only is that a sacred practice in the church going back to its beginning, but it reflects the significance of God's Word. And there are weeks where it's just a few verses. In fact, we went through the Ten Commandments, there might just be a few words at times. And then there are other weeks where it's a large portion. And when you're dealing with a narrative, a story, it's not just a tightly argued little paragraph like you might get in the book of Romans. It's, it's a longer story, and it's rich with a lot of details. And I'll try to explain its message to us now. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, guide us as we approach your word. Thank you for its truth. Help us to see it and help us to be shaped by the story, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you get through all the names and here's what you got. You have a man named Elkanah. And man, did he love this woman named Hannah. And you don't know for sure, but there's a whole lot of details that kind of put together a patchwork of a scenario. He loved her, and clearly he loved her even more than his other wife. The text says as much. On verse 4 and 5, when he would sacrifice, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion. Because he loved her. Now, it may have been something like this. We don't know for sure, but this is a very likely scenario in those days. He was betrothed to Hannah, married her, and she was unable to bear him any children. So he made a decision that was a common practice in those days, is to actually take on another wife. Never a good plan. Not a good plan then. Not a good plan now. So you're already seeing, arguably, somebody who's trying to take in his own hands. Not God. Not entrusting God with his providence for his life. You arguably are seeing a man who's trying to work the system a bit. But now picture the scene in his own house. His second wife fulfills the duty, and produces him, what does the text say in verse 4? Sons and daughters, she is as fertile as can be, and is popping out children, arguably to to Akana's delight. He has heirs in his name, security for his at least one wife, but that's not the wife he loved. Penina was the one that he needed for his children. She was utilitarian a bit. It was Hannah they loved. And do you not think Penina knows this? She knows exactly why she's there and who she's not to her husband. And all she can do, the only advantage she has is that her womb is not closed. And she will rub that in Hannah's face every single day. Now, that's an interesting scene. I mean, you you get through a bunch of names, sounding like tofu and a bunch of other stuff in verses 1 and 2, 
and you quickly read through a few verses, but I just want you to sit in that story for a little bit. What kind of a home was that? All these children to one of the wives, but the husband loves the other and clearly shows it. So that wife, every time she can, every moment she can, will rub it in Hannah's face. Look at verse 6. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Grievously. Boy, it'd be nice if that was a hyperlink we could double-click on and listen to the stories there. So now do you have the scene? It's interesting, because last week I wanted to introduce you to the larger trajectory of the biblical story, so we went back to Deuteronomy to look at this promise of God's king, because ultimately, in First and Second Samuel, God's king and kingship and God's transition of caring for his people was, is going to be explained. So you're kind of expecting that scene, like there's no language of king here. There's there's nothing like this huge biblical story that flying 30,000 feet above, you can kind of see the whole thing that somehow winds to Jesus. But yet notice in this scene, you're plopped right into a kitchen with a bunch of kids and two wives and a husband that arguably went against the Lord himself just to accommodate his own desire, his own inheritance, his own passing on his name. Two wives with whom there is conflict, and this young woman, Hannah, who has no children and weeps and is tortured by her fellow wife and is totally misunderstood by her husband. Guys, verse 8 is a what not to say to your wife, by the way. Listen to these words. He, he sees... His wife is so burdened. And he said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Dumb question, Elkanah. Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? And then he ends with this. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, ten sons sounds interesting. It's a bit of a dish on daughters, of course. But, you, but understand the ancient world. In the ancient world, a female was basically like part of the property. So a misunderstanding of made in the image of God and all of those things that we would push against now, but put it in that context. So daughters were almost worthless when it came to passing on property and facilitating a name, etc. So And ten sons is, was in those days like the pinnacle. Like the, the maximum. The, God has blessed you with 10 sons. I guess 10 daughters is not good, but 10 sons is the blessing. So he literally is comparing himself. I mean, he's a bit pompous, isn't he? He's like, am I not worth more to you than 10 sons? Notice that she didn't even respond. Well, I want to show you how this text in this first chapter of Samuel, shows God's fingerprints on everything so that we may trust him with everything. And there's a difficult statement stated twice in verse both 5 and 6 that we can't just go past. 
you get this context of this woman who cannot bear children in this difficult situation with a pretty clueless husband and a fellow wife who is grievously irritating her. And what's the cause? It actually is stated there pretty boldly by God himself. Look at what verse 5 says. At the end of verse 5, he, Elkanah is loving his wife, though the Lord had closed her womb. That's pretty bold, God. Like, just think about that for a second. That's like divine agency kind of speak. It wasn't just like, well, there was some medical issue, right, to, to some neutral causality. Like, that's pretty strong. It said the Lord closed a room. Whoa, that's a bit of a problem, at least from our perspective. What do you do with that, Christian? And in case you missed it in verse 5, the text says it again in verse 6. Because the Lord had closed her womb. Same statement made twice. Man, when the Bible says stuff, it's important. When it doubles it, it's really important. Like, none of us can read through that without seeing the issue. Beyond the issue of the human situation, like, what was it like living with Panina day in and day out? Or every day caring and tending for children that do not belong to you? Or having a husband that is clueless about all this? Or even as, we read, as Bev read, we could go on to a priest who's absolutely so distant from his people that he just is from afar making comments because he's not sitting there seeing this woman crying, coming up and praying with her and talking to her and hearing her story. He's just like accusing her of being intoxicated. It tells you what the temple was like in those days. Drunk, just, just distant individuals, priests who didn't care about their duties and didn't know their people. I mean, does this woman have anybody supporting her? And then on top of it, the text is telling us that it's not just, well, it's a broken, fallen world. It says God closed her womb. Man, if we were 30,000 above last week flying over the Old Testament, this plane just crash-landed in the middle of a house. And you're just sitting there looking at this woman, Hannah, and you're thinking, God, how does this fit in your story? What does this even tell us about you? Well, there's one clue before you ever get to five and six that probably a lot of us would have missed. But man, God is intentional with his word. That's why we read the whole text. In the middle of this context, in verse three, as the scene is just being set, the text says, now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from this city to worship and sacrifice, and here's the phrase, to the Lord of hosts. Now, there it is. It might not seem like much, but it is the first use of one of the most important titles for God in the Bible. It's never been used in the Bible up to this point. So you've got a whole lot of Bible stories, a ton of miracles happening, God redeeming his people from Pharaoh. I mean, you've got some amazing stuff happening in the books before 1 Samuel. But God waits until this very scene to give a name that declares his perfect sovereignty over all things. 
The Lord of hosts. Host is the word that means like the angelic beings. The, the things that are beyond our pay grade. Like God didn't just make like trees that you and I can chop down and use for fire or make a house. He didn't just, it's not, he's not just the Lord of flowers that we can grow alone in our own garden. Like that title is like, he's the Lord of the unseen spiritual realities. And if you thought, remember that closed room was mentioned twice? If you think it's an insignificant title, then jump down to verse 10. What does Hannah pray? Right, verse 9, they're, they're, they're eating and drinking in Shiloh. They're, they're there for a religious festival, but it's just because it's cultural. To be honest with you, it probably looks a lot of like the cultural Christianity we see in our world today. After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Right, she stayed for the festivities, but she was going to the temple. And Eli's sitting there at the doorpost, probably having his own wine, watching the festivities. But she came to pray. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Again, imagine the priest sitting up there in his chair and not coming down and talking to his sister. And she vowed a vow and said, look at there, verse 11, what does she call God? O Lord of hosts. Now, man, that, that tells you a lot with just a little. In that moment, when she doesn't have anything to grab onto, there is nothing she can hold, her husband doesn't understand, her priest is about to ask a stupid question and make dumb assumptions, her fellow wife is literally irritating her, maybe during the whole meal, she walks to the temple and she calls out to the mysterious God. Now, this text teaches us something so important. We can't miss it. It teaches about the doctrine of providence. Brothers and sisters, if there is a doctrine besides the doctrine of Christ and salvation that is important for you to live with as you navigate a broken, fallen world, it's the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence says this, that God sustains and directs and again, if you think directs feels too strong, who closed the womb? God sustains and directs all things in ways that are mysterious, yet give him the most glory and his people the most good. Now that's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't explain all of that because it just doesn't give us the pay grade to understand all that. But it says the doctrine of providence is like the doctrine of creation. The God who created all things sustains all things and directs them in ways that are mysterious to us. He's the Lord of hosts. We do not understand his sovereignty over all things. We just know it's true. He, he, he works all things out that give him the most glory and his people the most good. Now, again, you're asking, wait a second. I'll tell you what would have been good for Hannah. It would have been a little baby of her own. You're not God. Elkanah is not God. No, Elkanah, you are not worthy, as worthy as ten sons. You know who is? 
the Lord is. Now, put this in, let's flesh out the doctrine of providence in light of this text. It reveals something about who God is. God is not a father who responds to every whim and desire of his children. He's not. Do you think God didn't hear her prayer? He did. In fact, the text later says, verse 19, and the Lord remembered her. You think he doesn't hear prayers? He hears them. The text tells us that. God is also not an abusive father who seeks his own interest and ignores his children's cries. And again, hear this. Hannah seems to know this, but you and I need to know this. It is tempting at times when things go south, when things are difficult, to get angry at God, to make expectations and demands of God. The Bible will slap you on the wrist every time you try to do that. Because it will say to you, God is a God of love and grace. And if you want proof of that, look to that cross. That he gave his own son to die in your place. Does that sound like a God who's vindictive? Does that sound like a God who doesn't care for the needs of his children? We are literally in here. How many of us are in here? 170, 180? We literally all gathered, not mowing our lawns right now, or heading to a golf course, or watching news on TV, or going out for breakfast. We gather because we know that one God gave his son to die for all of our sins. And that is so amazing that we sing songs like Amazing Grace, and we want to shout it to the mountains. So yet, when, when we see a text that says God closed her womb, we know it's not because he doesn't give good gifts to his children. And we know it's not because he's just an angry God who's selfish. He's the most gracious, loving being that we could ever imagine. So that needs to be triangulated with such phrases like, he closed her womb. And then when you see that phrase, Lord of hosts, you just simply know it's beyond our pay grade. Maybe you could say it this way. God works out the details of our lives, of, of Hannah here, God works out the details in our lives from his perspective with his perfect purposes and with his perfect provision. Perspective, purpose, and provision. Meaning, we can't see exactly what God sees, but God sees it. We don't know exactly what the best thing is. We don't. But God's purposes are perfect. And we actually don't even know what the best thing is to get. Like we think we do. I need this or I need that or they need this or they need that. But God's provision is perfect. So that these verses guide us to look at our own circumstances what, what, I, what I love about Scripture, right, and just imagine this with even our kids sitting here now or your grandkids. And I mean, how often are you with your children just taking them and getting on a knee and holding their little face and using analogies to explain to them, listen how beautiful your God is, right? He literally in 1 Samuel 1 explains uh, the detail of his beautiful care and provision in the context of of a specific story so that you can know that's not just Hannah's God, that's your God. 
These verses guide us to look at our own circumstances with divine glasses. And they give us a prayerful response. So, what is your situation now? Man, some of you in this room have gone through horrendous things. I have stood with you in hospital rooms. I've sat next to you on bedsides. I have prayed with you in elder prayer meetings. Like some of you have gone through horrendous things. And you could be asking the question, God, what are you doing? Maybe you cried out, oh, Lord of hosts. Will you not answer my prayer? This text teaches us to look from God's perspective for God's purposes and to wait on God's provision. God's perspective. This is what we might pray. Lord, help me to see what I'm missing. Or if I can't quite see what you see, help me not to rely just on what I see. Boy, that's a bold prayer. Lord, I, I, it makes no sense what you're doing. It, from my perspective, it seems like a divine blunder, but my perspective is limited. Help me to trust what I cannot see because I trust in you. How about God's purposes? Lord, use this difficulty in my life or in the lives of others to do your work. Use it. Like, I don't even know what I need out of this. In fact, I don't even think I wanted this. How many of us would look back at a difficulty, see in some way, even if limited, how God worked through it and never have volunteered for that? Oh, uh, no volunteer here. Like you with scripture today. No, thank you. I will not read. Well done, Beth. How many of you would have kind of removed your raised hand from a moment of suffering, yet in God's perfect purposes, he used it not only to minister to you in ways, to form you, to break you, to shape you, not only to show you his power and his majesty, but even maybe to use you as a conduit of ministry for other people. Yet none of you would have said, I'll take that burden. Yeah, go ahead, do that to my kids. Great, I'm loving it. That'd be awesome. Yep. I'd love to see that happen in my marriage. Perfect. I volunteer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love sickness. Give it to me. I'll take it. Like Nobody raised their hands for that, yet God uses those. Lord, help us to use this difficulty work in my life and the lives of others. And finally, provision. Perspective, purpose, and provision. Lord, I will trust you with my need. Not only the how, but also the when. By the way, just, just by note, the word no is an answer God often gives. Moms and dads, grandma and grandpa, you know that. Is there ever a meal one of my kids doesn't ask for ice cream afterwards? I don't think so. God says no. And when he says no, he works just as powerfully and purposefully as when he says yes. God's providence is no guarantee. It is no guarantee of a result. There's no guarantee it's going to all work out, right? This story, there's a lot of suffering and God works. But even then, just so you know, because Bev already read it for us, at the end of the day, she's childless still. At the end of this story, 
It is Hannah giving her child to the Lord, which, to be honest, is what she had to do before she was even pregnant. She had to say, my womb is yours. Whatever you do with this, Lord of hosts, it is yours. And she follows through. The end of the story, verses 9 to 28, reveal one more thing that I just want to reflect on this morning. Samuel begins in the depths of despair to display God's reversal of worldly wisdom. What did we learn? And Vera says this to our kids, but all, it, well, her words are good for all of us. What did we learn from Hannah's response? How does she respond to severe pain, to the cruelty of Panina, to the self-centered half-measure of her husband, even to the cluelessness of Eli the priest? She turns to the Lord. Man, that is tough. I'll tell you, our default is to do exactly what her husband did. Is to, is to, is to, I don't have children, I get another wife. This isn't working, I, I work the system. I work the system. That is not what this sister in Christ did. What Hannah did was turn to the Lord. Notice how she models what God-fearers do under pressure and when suffering. She resists fighting her rival. The text gives us no clue that she fought back. I can only imagine she would go to her bedroom at days and just cry out loud in a pillow because of the grievous treatment of her fellow wife. She resists fleeing to the empty comforts of her husband. When he gives those ridiculous statements of self-centered provision, she doesn't even respond. The text reveals none of that. She resists taking offense at the cluelessness of the priest, who, by the way, God will deal with in the coming chapters. She actually asks for and receives his blessing, even if it was arguably half-hearted and distracted. The biggest thing, she resists blaming God for his lack of provision, even though the text says he closed her womb. Rather, she turns to the Lord and gives God her burden. Turning to the Lord, brothers and sisters, is not just about going to God, it is about giving to God. Lord, I give you this need. And that is hard because we are all in one way or another. In our modern world, we are all control freaks. Type A or not, we are all want to have control. And when we go to the Lord, we give to the Lord. Lord, take my womb, Anna says. It is yours. Take my health. Take my marriage. Take my children. Take my grandchildren. Take my job. The response of Hannah's is ours to follow. Don't let this text be just about how God responds. Sometimes God says yes. Sometimes he says not yet. Sometimes he says no. The text is teaching us to learn from Hannah. And best, it's best not to view her request of God as a bargain. The language of vowel is in there. And you can imagine Christians thinking of Jesus' rebuke of such language, and fair enough. But I wonder if in the ancient world context, this would have been more of a total relinquishing. God, I claim nothing. Whatever comes of my womb, it is yours. 
So why did God remember Hannah and respond to her prayers? We have to be careful here. We are living in a therapeutic culture. A therapeutic culture always wants to figure out and takes everything for gain and benefit. And we can do that. Christians sometimes come to church and they want their best life now, their better marriage, their better home, their better finances, and that makes God an app. A divine butler and a cosmic therapist who's working around the clock to make sure I get what I need. That is not the Lord of hosts. The gift of God was not because her faith was strong enough or her heart was in the right place. Wrong. Zero. I mean, if anybody, then why in the world did Panina get so many boys and girls? Does that look like her heart in the right place? Is she a woman of great faith? The Lord lets the rain fall on the crops of the most devout and the most sinful. The gift was also not meant to make God some kind of butler, an app for your best life now. This is no prosperity gospel text. Here's what I think the gift was. The gift was a reflection of God's desire to give good gifts to his children. That doesn't mean it's always going to be equal. There are young couples in our very congregation that will have a hard time with this text because it's a little close to home. Because they will see all these little beautiful ones of some of you running around this place and their womb is empty. Yet we know that God loves to give good gifts to his children. And according to his purposes and his timing of provision, he does. The gift was... The gift to Hannah was also to teach us to resign our lives to the perfect wisdom and purposes of God. Sometimes he gives, sometimes he takes away. We sing songs like that. And the purpose is for us to trust him. So literally, as you're leaving this morning, in your mind may be the thought, have I resigned this to the Lord? But I think there's another reason that does kind of lift off the ground a little bit and get us higher to that biblical story. The gift was forecasting God's ways of working in the rest of the biblical story. It's forecasting a bit. God will elect individuals, people who are not impressive in the world's eyes, to accomplish his purposes for the world and his people. Like God, God is, up till this point, God has been mainly doing things at a collective level. He raised up a Moses, or he raised up a Joshua and some judges, but generally it's this collective idea. And slowly he's showing, I'm going to raise up individuals. And you can imagine where the biblical story goes. There's eventually one individual that is raised. His name is Jesus, through whom God will work. But what God will love to show you is it's not by might nor by power. It's not from what you think is success and dominance. I'm going to take people that in the world's eyes look weak and incompetent to show you that it was always about God and not about any of you. Paul says this in regard to the biblical story. 1 Corinthians 1. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. And God would take this barren womb and give a son through whom he would form the people of God for the rest of the biblical story. And it's interesting how the text ends. We're reading carefully. We're stumbling across difficult words, and we may have missed the end of verse 28. She cries out and says, Therefore I have entrusted. Lent is in the ESV sounds like I'm getting them back in some point. And I understand that it's not a bad translation, but in English, Lent has a different... Like, if I loan you my car, I'm not assuming you're not giving it back. I loaned him the car, and it's been four years now. I've never seen it. Right? Lent has a different connotation. In it, the, the same Hebrew word means entrusted. Like, it's her son, but it belongs to God. She says, therefore I have entrusted him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is entrusted to the Lord. And then the text ends with this, and he worshiped the Lord there. Who's the he? Why does it say he? It doesn't say she. You would have thought it said she. Commentators for centuries have said, is that, is that a typo? Like, should, isn't she the one who worshiped the Lord? Like, picture a mom. Walking up, by the way, this is a little awkward, but nursing happened till they were about three years old. So this kid's walking. This isn't a little baby being passed over after eight or nine months of nursing. This is a three-year-old. So get beyond that, Americans, right? That's a little odd, but that happens all over the world to this day. So here's a little boy walking up. He's like three. He doesn't even know what's going on. And his mother brings this offering to the temple. It's not about the priest, it's about the God. And she finishes, and then literally is almost a little wink from heaven. This three-year-old boy worships the king. He just, he just responds in worship. And the text kind of winks at us. Oh, isn't God good? Out of the mouth of babes comes the work of God. Brothers and sisters, this passage teaches us about how God works, not only in the biblical story, but in your story. So bow your heads with me, would you, just for a moment? Like, let this text sit. Maybe some of you come and you're thinking about what burden you're bearing. It's obvious, you feel it. Maybe you've tried to negotiate your situation in some way or navigate circumstances like Elkanah did. Maybe you feel so empty because God has not remembered you yet. And you're wondering how and why. And you're tempted, whatever it is, to even get angry at the king. And then you come to 1 Samuel 1. And even with text that describes specific God's divine agency, you see that phrase that Hannah prayed, O Lord of hosts, and man. You know that that's what you got to pray. So take a minute, 
And with the Lord of hosts who hears your prayers, entrust your burden to him. He is not a mean God. Jesus is proof that he is the most gracious God imaginable. Entrust your burden to him. Father, help us to see our circumstances with divine spectacles and to trust your perfect providence. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, those who feel like they are in a situation similar to Hannah, that they would not doubt, even when your answer is no or not yet, that they would not doubt the Lord of hosts. And they would entrust their situation, their need, their request, their whole life over to the generous, all-powerful Heavenly Father who not only hears the prayers of a Hannah millennia ago, but hears our prayers today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.